Greetings again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of OSI Today, a podcast featuring news and views from around the Office of Special Investigations. I'm Wayne Amon from OSI Public Affairs, and in this edition, we focus on one of the more unique missions of the organization, cold cases. And today, I'm pleased to be joined by the chief of the OSI cold case team, Mr. John Fine. John, welcome aboard. Great to have you with us. So good to be talking to you again. Yeah, thanks, Wayne. It's good to be here, and I'm excited to talk about OSI's cold case program. Now, uh, to get us going here, for those uh, unfamiliar with uh, OSI, let's do a little cold case 101, shall we? What exactly constitutes a cold case? Now, um, in my uh, viewpoint, is it purely a, a criminal investigation unsolved for a specific period of time, or is there more to it than uh, just the time that's elapsed? Yeah, so we focus primarily on criminal cases. However, we do work on some counterintelligent cases as well and, and missing persons cases too. And as far as how old a case has to be before we call it before we call it cold, we don't have any specific time range. Instead, we focus on progress. Is, is it being made on the case? If the agents in the field who are working the case are making progress and they still have viable leads that they can do, we want them to continue working on these cases. Because uh-huh. you know, research tells us. If you have, a, you have a better chance of solving the case in the early stages of the investigation and the chances of success go down as time goes by. And we also know that people in the best position to solve the case are the ones that worked it from the beginning. Right. So that's why right. we, we don't necessarily have a specific time frame of when a case goes cold. If they're making progress, we want them to keep working on it. Right, right. So I, I would imagine then, uh, John, that uh, perseverance is a uh, an attribute that uh, f- folks who work on it from the beginning, uh, it, it's a good thing to have is that uh, stick-to-itiveness. Definitely. Uh, you need patience in, the, in this um, in this job. You know, we, we have a saying on the cold case team, if it was easy, somebody else would have already solved it. So Right, right. Uh, these are tough cases. Sure. Now, uh, given the variety of active investigations the command is involved with on a daily basis, what types of investigations would fall under the cold case umbrella? I think you mentioned a couple of them uh, uh, a little while ago. Uh, so I would imagine it's a, it's a broad spectrum of cases that uh, you deal with. Yep. So that's true. So by policy, we were charged to look at any of the unsolved homicides, attempted homicides, uh, rape or sexual assault. We look at some kidnappings some long-term missing persons cases, and we also look at some espionage cases. And, and you know, I, it's important. We, we know all cases are important, especially to those involved in the case, but we right. need to focus on resources and efforts on the most serious crimes. So that's how we came up with the list that we look at. Right. Okay. Very good. Now, uh, shifting to the uh, OSI cold case team itself, of which you're the chief, when and why was the uh, cold case team created? Uh, so officially, we stood it up in 2015. Uh, OSI's always had cold cases, and we've always worked on them before. But I think the big change that happened is when OSI decided to uh, invest in full-time dedicated resources uh, and a team to, to work on these cases. So, you know, over the years, we've tried several different ways to tackle cold cases, and we've had varying degrees of success. Uh, one of the things we did is we'd leave the cases in the field and the agents out there would work them in addition to their, their own cases. Uh-huh. But there was always competition between the cold cases and the hot cases. So, you know, in this situation, which case do you think it works first, gets worked first? The 10-year-old murder case that's been there for a while or the death case that just happened? Right. I think inevitably, right. and as it should, you need to work the hot case. Because uh-huh. like we said before, you, you have a better chance to solve a hot case than a cold case. 
And we also tried over the years to have a team at headquarters who would work on cold cases. But that was usually in addition to their headquarters job and it was part time. Right. Uh, they'd work on cold cases until there was a higher need for resources and they get pulled to deploy, maybe move to a new assignment or they were needed for some other high priority task. And, and I don't want you to read in this and think I'm judging the guys and gals that came before us. Right. It's clearly a resource issue. And uh-huh. as you know, resources are finite. And so sure. I think, I think that's why OSI made such a bold decision to carve out these precious resources and to dedicate them full time to work on cold cases. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you, in addition to that, I think OSI did another incredibly smart thing. They designated the chief of the cold case team to be a non-agent position. So, uh-huh. you know, I was hired back as a special investigator, not a special right. agent. I see. You know, even though I have a badge and gun, I'm not an agent anymore. Uh-huh. But therefore, I don't have to be concerned with PCSs, promotions, or other career broadening assignments right. that are other agents in the field that are required to do because they're part of this worldwide investigative organization. I'm allowed to focus on long-term continuity of the cold case program. Yeah, it sounds like stability is, is important in, the, in your particular job anyway, right? Yeah, and you know, even though the agents on the team may rotate, like you said, there's always someone here that knows the history of the cases. And, and I think maybe making that move to invest in these long-term dedicated resources shows just how seriously OSI is about these cases. Right. And I, and I don't think it hurts that the last three OSI commanders all had forensic science backgrounds. Ah, so, yes, so we, yes. We do get a lot of support. <laughs> there you go. Uh, now, organizationally speaking, John, how is the cold case team aligned within the OSI command structure? Right. So the cold case team, we're part of the OSI Center, which is co-located with OSI headquarters. And we're specifically aligned within the center in the law enforcement division. Uh, There are four branches within the LA division. There's the crim branch, the fraud and corruption branch, uh, the specialist integration branch, and and us, the cold case branch. And we all work together to help the field um, and, and enable operations across the command. Right. I see. Now, uh, a lot of people have heard about uh, the term metrics of late. You know, we hear it in sports. We hear it in a lot of uh, lines of work. Uh, they become a popular way of gauging job performance these days. What kind of a caseload is the OSI cold case team tracking in 2022? Right. So right now we're tracking 31 homicides across the Department of the Air Force that we have interest in. Uh, this includes uh, homicides that occurred on an Air Force base or cases off base where an Air Force member was killed. Right. Uh, typically in the off base cases, or not typically in all the off base cases, we'll work with our state and local partners in an effort to solve these cases. Um, even though we're tracking 31 cases, um, we only focus on two to three at a time because I see. methodology has shown us that you have to stay focused on certain cases right. uh, and you can't work all 31, obviously at the same time. Right. 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 And, and as you said, uh, resources are finite. So that kind of plays into that uh, aspect of it as well. I would imagine. Definitely. Now uh, our public affairs staff uh, over the years has written about the successful closure of some fairly old investigations. I know I have uh, our PA chief has as well. Uh, how far back do some of those cold cases go? Uh, some of them go back quite a ways. I tell you, last year we worked on a case from 1957. Wow. Uh, but we, we also have cases from the 60s all the way up to the modern era. Uh-huh. And the, these older cases 
as you know, presents some unique challenges. And in a lot of the cases, the bases, they're not even around anymore. They've been closed. Records are probably or are incomplete. Witnesses have died. Their memories faded. So we spend a lot of time digging through boxes of archive records, old newspapers, you know, looking for something to help us put all the pieces of the puzzle together, just to even get the pieces of the puzzle. Uh uh, So we start putting it together. So uh, one of the things that we use, uh, a great resource, is we use the Association of Former OSI Agents. Yes, this is a, yes. This is the group of, ret- as you know, a group of retired agents. Yep. Uh, so we'll reach out to the retired agents and ask them about the, the cases. And what amazes me is just how much these guys can remember. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> what usually happens is uh, right after, uh, we'll call them and I'll introduce myself, and I'll tell them I'm calling from the cold case team, and I'll say, hey, man, were you? were you assigned to base X back in the day? And inevitably they'll interrupt me and say, I bet you want to talk about the such and such case. <laughs> they know right away about, about the case. They, yeah. they also say things like, you know, that case has always bothered me, or I still think about that case today. Wow. The memory on some of these folks is amazing. You know, what a, what a great, I, what a great resource to go to, huh? Yeah, because I yeah, because I know I have trouble remembering things from last week, but these right. guys remember <laughs> details of cases even though it was 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And another thing, the way they help us, the former agents association, is helping us put the context to this case together. You know, these happened 30, 40 years ago, and today's Air Force, today's OSI is not the same as it was back in the 70s. Sure, sure. So so if we see something in a file that doesn't make sense, we usually reach out to uh, retired Colonel Dick Law or retired Chief Rich Miller from the association right. and ask him, hey, why do you think they did this the way they did back then? Or, or would we find this certain record? You yeah. know, bottom yeah. line, the, the Former's Agents Association is just a great resource for us. Oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt about that. Now, uh, speaking of uh, great people, uh, OSI uh, places a high premium on its people to perform the mission. What's the composition of the cold case team and what attributes make a good cold case investigator? We mentioned, I think perseverance was, was one attribute, but uh, uh, can you tell us some of the other things that uh, kind of uh, uh, really assist a cold case investigator in, in the pursuit of uh, mission closure? Sure. Uh, first off, there's three of us on the team right now working full time. Um, there's an active duty agent, as well as a civilian agent on a team. Uh-huh. And I think it's important to note that the team's composition is on purpose. We, we wanted a diverse group of people that would bring unique experiences to the team. Right. So, for instance, although everyone's an experienced investigator, the active duty agent is usually the younger guy or gal and has recent field experience, while maybe the civilian agent is usually middle late in his or her career right. and possibly – came from another agency. So I, I guess that leaves me to cover the older demographic, <laughs> but it's the combination of all these life and professional experiences that helps us look at a case from a different perspective. Right. So right. I think when you talk about what, you know, you asked about the attributes of what makes a, a good cold case agents, I, I would highlight um, obviously experienced agent, but also agents with strong interpersonal and communication skills. Uh, right. They need to be, they need to be motivated. They need to have enthusiasm, creativity. And, and here's what we talked about uh, earlier. Most importantly, probably patience and tenacity. Yeah. yeah. Um, like I said, if it was easy, someone else would have solved it. So sure, sure. It, these are 
Wayne, these are tough cases, and wins are far and few between. Uh So if you're looking for instant gratification, cold case probably is in the place for you. Right. Now, uh, John, uh, you mentioned, I think, briefly the word uh, method or methodology. I understand that there's a a three-step methodology in determining which cold cases to work on. What is it called, and could you explain how the cold case team uses it to select its cases? Yeah, I'm not sure we have a name for it. Uh, we definitely <laughs> do have a uh, triaging and cataloging system. Because triage, we, triage is a good name, yeah. <laughs> okay, we have a triaging system. Uh, and we work on the, we want to work on the most solvable cases first. And this system helps us determine which cases we should be looking at. And the, the methodology we use to make that determination, it has three factors. It's time, technology, and relationships. Uh-huh. In time, time changes everything. So when we look at a case, we look to see what, what's changed over time. What's different? What new information is out there? Maybe someone's come forward with a new with new information, or maybe in a tip. A tip. Um, and, and relationships also change over time. So we'll look at a case and see if there's been a relationship change involving the people in the case. Right. Uh, maybe a witness or a victim is now out of an abusive relationship and now finally feels safe wants to come forward with information right or, or maybe right. the suspect has died and now a family member will come forward and provide information right even <laughs> and even there's sometimes a divorce or a breakup and someone now wants to get back at the other person people have uh-huh. a lot have motivation for a lot of different reasons right right I, right I think what changes the most though is obviously technology yeah advancements yep. in technology is a game changer for cold cases. Uh, so when we do reviews for each case, looking for those changes in time, technology, and relationships, we catalog those cases uh, that way. So for instance, in a case involving ballistics, we'll tag it with ballistics. Uh-huh. Maybe a case involves DNA, we'll put a DNA tag in there. Right. Uh, same, same thing about it. fingerprints, hairs, and fibers. So that way, when there's a new advancement in technology, we can immediately go to our database, do a search, and we know which, which cases we can apply this new technology to. And that keeps us focused on the right cases. Right. Well, that, uh, that led me right into my next question about technology. Uh, and you mentioned some of them. Uh, are there any other technological advances that uh, help uh, your team solve cold cases? I mean, uh, you just mentioned uh, some really great ones. Uh, I would imagine with the evolution of technology over the years, uh, technology becomes a, a real strong suit for, for you guys. It is. And then, you know, like we said, we talked about ballistics and fingerprints. Uh, but, you know, the one everyone wants to talk about, it's DNA. Yeah, it's it's amazing the advancement that have been made in in the DNA field and continue to be made. I know um, when I started working cases back in the 80s, DNA was this new thing that I know I I know I didn't really understand it. And I do. And I know you needed a pretty large sample to test it to test back then. And even then, it was mostly used just for one to one comparison. Uh Does sample match that suspect? It it was pretty limited. Right. Today, the amount needed to get a DNA profile is just a fraction of what was needed just, just a few years ago. Sure. So I think once you get this profile, what you can do with it is even more amazing. Uh, a couple of exi- exciting advancements are phenotyping and genetic genealogy. Uh-huh. Uh, so an example of phenotyping, it, it's, this is how they explained it to me, and, it, and it's, a great, it's a great advancement. You, let's say you've got a crime scene where you know uh, an unknown subject has left behind some DNA. 
We'll take that sample, we'll send it off the lab. The lab will analyze it, and then they can provide you with a report about certain characteristics of the unknown the unknown subject would have. I see. They, Wayne, they can predict genetic ancestry, eye color, hair color, skin color, freckling, and face shape. Basically, really? they're going to tell you what your unknown subject looks like. Huh. They they will even provide you a composite of the suspect. Now, it's not obviously it's not a photograph, right? But it can sure help you narrow down the suspect pool. This is really exciting stuff. Wow! Wow! Um, it is, and but the, the 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 most exciting, I think, and the one it, that you'll see most often is when people talk about genetic genealogy. Uh-huh. Just about every week in the news, you hear about another cold case being solved by genetic genealogy. Right. In, in these right. types of cases, you take the DNA profile and you compare it to other profiles in ancestry databases, and you're looking for people who share the same DNA. And once you identify a relative of the suspect, and based on the amount of DNA shared, you can predict generally where on somebody's family tree the suspect should be. Wow, and, amazing. And is- sometimes, <laughs> I'm sorry, and sometimes in these cases, the genealogist working on the case is just as important as the DNA folks, because I'll right. tell you, Wayne, some people have some really complicated family trees, and we <laughs> yeah. rely we rely on the genealogists to unravel it all for us. Right. Uh, that, that is that is truly amazing. Uh, now, John, besides technology, uh, the collective expertise of uh, diverse OSI specialists, uh, I would think, plays a major role in uh, what I've been told, uh, the, your murder boards and roundtables for cold cases. What's the composition of the boards and roundtables that uh, your team uh, relies upon? Yeah, so a murder board or, or a roundtable, it's called either or, is when you get a, a lot of really smart people in one room to look at a case in an effort to develop new leads and strategies. You know, I, I learned a long time ago, uh, you, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room, but you need to know who is. Right, right. And, and so the key, what we're trying to do is get these folks, as many diverse thinkers in the room at the same time. The case is already cold. We want a new set of fresh eyes looking at it from a different perspective. Uh-huh. So, the, the kind of people we that, that usually participate in our board, for sure, we, we want our forensics people in the room. Right. We want uh, we want our behavioral psychologists in the room. You know, I love our docs, but they, they bring an amazing uh, set of skills to, to the fight. Uh, we we want our criminal analysts in there. We'll invite an NCIS agent or maybe an Army CID agent, a local homicide detective also to participate. Huh, I see. We'll, we'll have... Uh, you know, like the, the former agents association, we might have a uh, former OSI retired agent in there to, again, help us with perspective. Right. And sometimes we'll include professional staff members to participate because, yeah. you know, if, if you put nothing but agents in the room, you're going to get nothing but agent ideas. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> these, like I said, Wayne, th- these cases are cold. We need new ideas. You know, I'm thinking now I should put your name on the list for the next one, and, and I can add you can add solving a cold case to your resume. Wow, I'd, I'd I'd love to do that. I mean, that would that would be a real eye opener for yours truly. That's for sure. But uh, yeah, you it's amazing. It's amazing how you have such an outreach uh, for something like that. It, it, because it's all about new ideas, new ways of looking at it. Again, nothing about not second guessing anybody that came before us. These guys did the best that they could with what they had back in the day, but. Uh-huh. Everything has changed. There's new ways of looking at stuff. There's new tools you can bring to the fight. And we want those types of people in the room uh, given given advice and, and strategy on what we could do next. 
Wow, that is fantastic. Now, uh, with the many cases that OSI handles, uh, you know, globally, uh, because we are such a, a, a worldwide organization, how does the cold case team assist the field with their hot cases so uh, they don't uh, in turn go cold? Right. So I think it's been said before, you know, OSI is a team sport and, um, and everybody uh, needs to fight at the same time. So as part of the OSI center, one of the main missions of, of the center is to support the field with their cases. So if we see the field has an unknown subject case that's starting to stall out, we might reach out and offer our assistance, give them some tips or tricks that we've seen along the way uh, and see if they can get that case moving again. Because like I said, you've got a better chance of solving the case early and the people who initially worked it in the best position to solve it. So right. anything we can do to help the field solve a case, we will. And I maybe a little selfish, but that also means the case will never <laughs> come my way. And I consider that a win-win. There you go. There you go. Well said. Now, uh, regarding uh, long-term mission person cases that you had uh, mentioned before, uh, I've heard about the National Missing and Unidentified System. Uh, how does that help the OSI cold case team deliver successful case resolution? And what exactly is it? Right. So this is another topic I'm, I'm really excited to talk about. It's the National Missing and Unidentified System, or as we call it, NamUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Department of Justice funded program. It's basically a clearinghouse that tries to match missing persons cases to unidentified remain cases across the U.S. So right now we have about 20 long-term missing persons cases that we're we're tracking. Most of these are Air Force members who disappeared. They're different than a deserter case where we believe that, that someone left on their own accord. These are people we have no idea where they are or what may have happened to them right. and their families have no idea what happened to them. They're just, yeah. they're just gone. Yeah. So we can, when we, we consider them missing persons. So we load them into NamUs at the same time, all around the U S coroners, medical examiners, and others are putting in their unidentified remains cases, hoping to get a match to a missing person's case. Huh. And, wow. uh, not quite sure all the all the, the science wizardry wizardry behind this, but they use this algorithm that looks for similar t- similarities between the cases. Uh-huh. And at the same time, you got the fingerprints, DNA, dental records. They're all being searched within the system, looking for matches. And right, uh, right. and and as you know, in the past few years, we solved a couple of cases using Namus. In both cases, an airman went missing back in the nineteen seventies, and we had no idea what happened to him. Wow! In one in one case, we entered him, uh, the missing person in NamUs, and we got back some possible matches. And then using dental records, we were able to positively ID him as our missing Air Force member. Wow. Uh, s- sadly, his remains had been in a coroner's office the whole time, uh-huh. but there was no way to ID him, and they didn't know who he was. And, and it was, you know, so they were just waiting, hopefully, for some technology change where they could help ID. And in this case, we were able to. And, and in the other case, uh, we already had our Air Force member loaded up in the NamUs. So uh, when a local jurisdiction unearthed some unidentified remains, in the, um, remains, the system then matched them to our case, and we were able to confirm the ID using DNA. Right, so I, right. I, I think without these types of programs or this technology, I'm not sure these cases would have ever been solved. But thankfully, in both of these cases, we were able to provide answers to the Air Force and the members' families, and hopefully offer them some, some, some sort of closure. 
that's that was that was the next word I was going to say. Uh, you're doing uh, the family's uh, uh, definite uh, public service by uh, providing that closure. No doubt about that. Uh, now, John, uh, in the near future, the cold case team plans to share some information to spotlight certain cases. What can you tell us about that initiative? Yeah, so I, I think just like the way we use technology to solve cases, the way we use the public to solve cases has changed. Uh-huh. Um, I think you and I both agree back in the day, I'm not so sure we were comfortable sharing information on cases. But today, cases are being solved through crowdsourcing, Internet sleuthing, podcasts, all yeah. which lead to the public calling in tips. Uh-huh. So we're on board with this strategy, and we plan to start highlighting more of our cold cases to the public. We, we just aren't quite there yet because we still want to make sure the families and the victims who are involved in these cases are good with it before we go public. Right, right. And Very good. Now, obviously, uh, you know, we've, uh, uh, for some time, we've had, uh, you know, uh, submit a tip on our uh, public website uh, so people can, uh, uh, you know, uh, online, uh, uh, you know, anonymously uh, uh, give uh, OSI some tips. So uh, I would assume that uh, we'll be talking about that uh, uh, a little bit more down the road as well. Absolutely. So I, I'm with you. If anyone has any information about any crimes that affect the Department of the Air Force, we'd love to hear about it. Like, like you said, go to our public website, the Office of Special Investigations website, and you can submit a tip right there. Outstanding. Now, uh, John, before we uh, wrap things up uh, in this edition of uh, OSI today, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, as they say, the, the podcast is yours. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. Uh, as you promised, it wasn't as painful as I thought it was going to be. And I, and I want to thank you <laughs> for going easy on me today. And so I guess I'll close with this. Uh, a few years back, the commander of OSI at the time, General Kevin Jacobson, uh, he put on paper why the Air Force Office of Special Investigation exists. Uh-huh. And he distilled, he distilled it down to four reasons. He said, we exist to, to defend the nation. We, we exist to protect the integrity of the Department of the Air Force. Yeah. We exist to serve justice. And we exist to find the truth. And so what I, what I want everyone to know is that OSI's cold case team is committed to finding the truth no matter how long it takes, because we owe that to the victims and the victims' families. Right, right. Yeah, spoken like uh, the mission statement that it is, John. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Wayne. Very good. Uh, Our guest has been Chief of the OSI Cold Case Team, Mr. John Fine. John, thanks again for taking the time to be with us. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you, Wayne. And thanks to all of you listening for tuning in. For OSI Today, I'm Wayne Amon saying so long for now.